Matthew chapter 14 and verse 22. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side where he sent the crowds away. Or while he sent the crowds away. And after he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there all alone. But the boat was already a long distance from land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. He began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped Him saying, You are certainly God's Son. Jesus, this is the very centerpiece of our worship this morning. You are certainly God's Son. You are the Chosen One. You are Messiah. You are the King. The great King promised to Israel. You are the King of all things. The King of eternity. You are our everlasting Father. Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Prince of Peace. You are all of these things. You are our salvation. And Jesus, we just praise You and lift up Your name and thank You for loving us so much. We thank You, Jesus, for walking the life that You walked out before our eyes. That we might see You and know You. That we might cry out, Lord, save me. And You stretch out Your hand and grab hold. And Jesus, as much as we pray this morning, do not let go. Don't let go, Lord. We also pray that You will teach us how to tighten our grip on You. That You will strengthen our faith. Show us how, Lord, faith is walked out. And how we can all become stronger because every one of us, regardless of where we're coming from right now, this morning, every one of us need to grow in faith. Want to grow in faith. Want to believe better than we believe right now. Lord Jesus, would You show us on this snowy day, would You show us how to do this? as we fix our eyes on You, the author and perfecter of our faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, I told everybody first hour how glad I am to see you all here. I wasn't sure. (laughs) I was more sure after first service when we had some people show up. I was was a little unsure walking down here in the snow this morning and it started snowing all over again. I had such mixed emotions. Even last night as the snow was coming down, we were watching White Christmas in my house, so it was perfect. It was ordered for the evening. But as the snow snow came down, I, I was torn because in my heart I was just, oh, this is great, snow day! But I wanted to be here. There is nothing like worshiping with brothers and sisters in Christ. There's nothing like sharing in this time together and getting to know each other better. So I I just cherish these times. I also cherish the opportunity to be in the Word together. It's so exciting to me. And we'll get there. I want to share with you, maybe some of you heard the story, you're probably aware of it at some level, 
It happened back in 1983, 25 years ago, almost 26 years ago, this February 3rd. Two state-of-the-art crabbing vessels, the Americus and the Altair, were idling at the dock in their home port of Anacortes. Fourteen crewmen were on deck, fathers, sons, brothers, and friends who'd known each other all their lives. The families were there, and there was some tension there that day because the year hadn't been great. The fishing had not been very good, and so they knew it was kind of a make-it-or-break-it haul as they headed out for Dutch Harbor, Alaska. After Dutch Harbor, they would set course for the Pribilof Islands and the Bering Sea. Eleven days after this, on Valentine's Day, the upturned hull of the Americus was found drifting in calm seas 25 miles outside of Dutch Harbor. Her sister ship, the Altair, had disappeared altogether. Fourteen men, two vessels went down in what's called the worst disaster in the history of U.S. commercial fishing. What's stunning to me about the story, and if you've ever read the book Lost at Sea, it's the story of the Americas and the Altair and what happened there. But the stunning thing to me is that at the time there was not a single distress call heard. No call went out. These two full ships with their full complement of men on board just vanished until the whole of one was found, the other one was never found, and none of the men were found as well. No distress call. Now, Sean Marisich, who was a fisherman himself for quite a while, he tells me that would be expected. Because being out on the Bering Sea, if you get hit by a rogue wave, you go down, there's no time to try and hit out, send out a mayday. No time to get a distress call out on the airwaves. I'm sure they tried. And I don't want to be graphic or, or depressing, but I, I can imagine, I can picture those men as the ship went over I know there were distress calls made, maybe not on the radios, but in their hearts, from their mouths, even as the ships were turning. But no distress signal was ever heard or ever responded to. I thought about that when I was considering the disciples out on the Sea of Galilee in their boat. Now, I know you might say, oh, you've got to be kidding. The Bering Sea, the Sea of Galilee. I mean, come on. How can you even make such a comparison? How can you look at these two and say they're anywhere near similar? And I'll tell you something, gang. They are. Here's why. The Sea of Galilee, Lake Canaret today, sits 680 feet below sea level. It is surrounded on all sides by large mountains. Rocky crags that on the eastern side, the Gadaras, stand tall. And they hold the weather in. In fact, it's, I, I share like Mount Vernon. You know, the weather passes right over the islands, goes to Mount Vernon and just sits there because the mountains tend to hold it in. Well, that's what happens in the Sea of Galilee. The weather whips down on the western side through these escarpments, these rocky escarpments that are, that are actually called the Horns of Hatim. And the Horns of Hatim serve as a funnel, a wind funnel, from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Sea of Galilee. So you think about this wind funnel, you've got this air coming in from that side, cold air that clashes with the warm air of the Galilee. It comes shooting in from the Mediterranean, dropping 680 feet, and by the time it hits the Galilee, it can hit so suddenly, it causes gale force winds, velocities, unbelievable, sudden and intense storms. You can be on the Sea of Galilee, and the whole sky be clear and beautiful, and within 10 minutes, be in the midst of a horrible storm. It's a very dangerous place to be. We like to go there on our trips to Israel and kind of float across and sing songs, you know. It's a good place. Furthermore, to make it more intense, thanks to the 1986 discovery 
of a boat, a fishing boat, a 2,000-year-old fishing boat that they've dated to right at the time of Christ. We know something of the craft that these men were in on that day. These 14 guys in a fishing vessel. In fact, that's a picture of a, of a mock-up, of a rendering of it. You can see the actual boat, what's, what's left of it. It's on display at a kibbutz where, where we stayed and we'll stay again the next time we go. And you can see the boat with your own eyes. And it's, it's fascinating, but it's pretty small. 25 feet in length, 7 feet in width, 4 feet in depth. It would take a crew of five. There would be four rowers and a helmsman. And it would ferry an additional 10 to 15 people. Now on this particular day, a boat of about this size, carrying 12 apostles, was on the sea. They packed these boats in. It was nighttime, and when the storm hit, it hit hard. It hit suddenly. It hit with tremendous velocity, as can happen on the Sea of Galilee. And the apostles are there. When this storm came in, they found themselves in the midst of this highly dangerous squall. Matthew 14, 24 describes it this way. They were a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now that doesn't mean the wind was in a bad mood. It doesn't mean the wind just needed a glass of orange juice. You know, the wind was contrary. Literally, the word there is enantios. In the Greek, it means hostile. There was a hostile wind blowing. The ship was battered. That Greek word is basanizo, which means tormented. This is a horrifying time. And no one, no one could have heard the distress call of the apostles as they were out in the midst of the sea. And there was no getting in the shore either. No matter how they rode, the boat was spun around and whipped by the wind and they could not go forward, they could not go back. They were stuck there in the middle all through the night. But there's something else you need to consider here. While this is all going on, Jesus is up on the mountainside praying. It had been a long day, probably, possibly, until His crucifixion day, the most exhausting day of Jesus' life. If you track back what had happened on that day so far, you know it began with another wonderful morning rejection by his hometown of Nazareth. Where the people once again said, we cannot believe, we know you too well. You're just Jesus, Joseph's boy. You're the carpenter's son. Who do you think you are? And for a second time in two years, Nazareth rejected their homeboy Jesus. Learning later of the execution of John the Baptist, his beloved cousin. These two things, same day. From there, Jesus attempts to get away on a boat by himself. We talked about this Wednesday. He headed off looking for a secluded place where he could be quiet and with his Father and be refreshed and restored and and pray and no doubt share some of the sorrow he was feeling. But he lands on the shore greeted by ten to 15,000 helpless, hurting people. All needing Jesus. Everybody needed Jesus. And he didn't do what I would have done, which is row in the opposite direction. He got out of the boat. And the Bible tells us he began healing, and he healed all their sick. How many sick people among 15,000 that day? I don't know. But not one of them went home unhealed. He even manifested the greatest miracle up to date, at least as far as the people were concerned. This was the miracle that made the people gather there start to think, he's got to be Messiah. Let's grab him. Let's take him. He doesn't want to be our king. Great. He's a humble guy. Let's make him our king. It was the feeding of the 5,000. 5,000 men. Which is where we get the number 10 to 15,000 because we know women and children were present as well. So 5,000 men ate. You add the women and children in there easily 10 to 15,000 folks. So quickly. 
physically exhausted, spiritually spent, Jesus sent the apostles ahead by boat while he dispersed the crowd before they could, you know, try to rein him in as their king. And then Jesus climbed the mountain to finally get alone with his father, to be refreshed, to pray. See, he never forgot about what his purpose was that day, and that was to get alone with God. And sometimes we do that. Sometimes we go through a day, maybe you start out intending to spend some time with the Father. Today's going to be the day. i got two hours this afternoon. I'm going to walk with God and talk with God and be alone with Him. And then life starts to happen. And people start to have needs. And they all start to come to you. And you've got to provide for those needs. But see, Jesus never forgot, though He cared for the needs, though He met the needs. He still, when it was all said and done, said, Good, okay, now that I've got a couple of minutes, I'm climbing the mountain. And that's a good example for us. Even if you have to put off that time, don't forget that time. I wonder what Satan was thinking about all of this. Because he sees Jesus on the mountain and Jesus is praying, which is never a good thing if you're Satan. And the apostles are on the boat heading out across the sea. He's already taken out John the Baptist through the evil of Herod. Man, it'd be great to get one more blow in on Jesus today if we could. Let's wipe out his 12 followers in a fell swoop. Let's send that air whipping down the horns of a team. Wipe out the apostles. We know he's called in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. Now, it's not the prince of the power of the wind, because the word wind in the Greek is pneuma. In the Hebrew, it's ruach. And it's the same word used for spirit. You never heard Satan referred to as the spirit or as the wind, but he is the prince of the power of the air, which means a couple of things. Either he has some power over elements like the air, like the wind, he can make it blow, or, or maybe he just doesn't have a whole lot of power at all. <laughs> maybe he's like air. Or maybe he's just an airhead. You think about that and process it yourself. But I have no doubt that Satan wanted to see things go poorly. The good news is that no matter what Satan means for ill, God always means it for good. The, the distress call does not go unheard. In fact, we're told in Mark's version of the story, Jesus is up there on the mountain looking down and He sees their distress. He sees the apostles straining at the oars for the wind was against them, Mark writes. He saw it going on. And so Jesus purposed to go out to them in the midst of the night. Look at this, verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Well, of course, how else is He going to get there? It's fourth watch of the night. The ferries are closed. So you walk. The Roman reckoning of time divided the night into four watches. The first watch of the night, according to the Roman schedule, was 6 to 9 p.m. Second watch of the night was 9 p.m. until midnight. The third watch, 12 to 3 a.m. And the fourth watch, when Jesus came to the apostles, was between 3 and 6 a.m. in the middle of the night. That's when Jesus arrived. The apostles, by this time, put yourself in their boat. Imagine their distress, their despair. Imagine straining at the oars against the storm all night long. This wasn't just five minutes after they hit the water. This wasn't an hour into their crossing. This was all night long. They're fighting this thing, and they're struggling, and they're straining to get the boat to the other side, tossed somewhere in the middle. They're going nowhere when Jesus comes to them walking on the sea. They're exhausted and weary and worn. And verse 26 says, When the disciples saw Him walking on the sea, and they were terrified and said, It's a ghost! Which by then, you don't have your wits about you. I do think it's nice when I read verse 26, it's nice to know that the founders of the church, the early guys, were never superstitious. 
you know, in their lives. It's a ghost, they cry. It's a good thing God changes the heart of man, and man doesn't change his own heart before coming to God. As the Lord would with the apostles. I want to show you something else here. I just need to pause and point this out. There are a lot of commentaries out there about what's going on in Scripture and about what's happening. William Barclay has one. Some of you may have his commentary. It's it's a good one, for the most part. But about this miracle, Barclay puts himself in the camp of those who would say, it might not have been a miracle. Maybe there's a way we could explain this. And Barclay said it could be that Jesus did walk on the water, or maybe the disciples thought he was walking on the water and actually what had happened was their boat was pushed toward the northern beachhead beachhead by by the storm without their realizing it. They didn't know they were so close to land and Jesus was actually just sloshing around on the shore. I hate when guys write stuff like that. (laughs) Because it makes them look so uneducated. Obviously, Barclay had not read verse 24 that said the boat was already a long distance from land. The Bible tells us exactly what was going on. The King James Version translates that in the midst of the sea. In the middle. Not close to shore. Now, I I point this out because, gang, far too many people, and sometimes we are tempted to do so as well, we try to naturalize the supernatural. We want to make what seems unbelievable more believable, so we say, well, maybe there's an explanation. You've heard of the Red Sea and the Reed Sea things? That's one of my just amazingly stupid things that, that, that people will talk about. Well, the Red Sea was actually the Reed Sea, which is only about that deep, and so, of course, maybe the wind just kind of dried it out and they walked through. Yeah, and the entire army of Pharaoh drowned in that much water. <laughs> See, there's the miracle. <laughs> you read what the Bible says and you take it for what it's worth, or, or don't believe it at all. So that, that's what I would encourage you. Either believe it for all of it, or don't waste your time. Because you can't explain them all away. This is Emmanuel we're talking about. God with us. Why should we wonder at Him walking on the face of the water? Verse 27 tells us immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, get yourself again in this situation. You're in the boat. You're exhausted, you're tired, you're not thinking straight. You see some kind of specter there in the wind and the waves walking on the water. How scary would that be? It's actually a great ghost story. And they don't know at first what it is or who it is. They just see this, ah, and I can imagine some of them must have thought it was death. Does he have a sickle? I can't tell. I mean, a freaky time for them until Jesus says... Take courage, it is I. I want you to jot some things down. If you're a note taker, the first one is this. The bulwark of courage, the bulwark of courage is the coming Christ. The bulwark of courage is the coming Christ. A ship's bulwark is its sides. The sides that will jut up higher than the deck. It's what protects those on board against the wind and the waves. And what protects you in stormy times is the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ. Notice Jesus doesn't say, Hey guys, batten down the hatches, you'll get through. He doesn't say, Take courage, I'll calm the storm for you. He says, Take courage, it is I. It's me. He is the source of our courage, looking directly at Him. Not things that He can do. Oh, He can do wonderful things. Not even your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not those around you. It is Jesus who gives you the courage. He is the bulwark of courage. And that bulwark gang is His coming. It's His coming. 
I love looking at Jesus. On Wednesday night, I came down and we were praying by the piano as we often do before service started. And Barb made a comment. She said, I realize that among all the waves of distraction, I really just need to see Jesus. And it clicked for me what Wednesday night was about. What the teaching was about. Because I wasn't sure coming down. I knew what it said, but I'm always thinking, Lord, what what are you trying to say? And we had just spent all this time in Matthew 13 over the last couple of weeks studying and listening to and digging into the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus that really gets in deep. And I realized, you know what I need in my life right now? I just need to see Him. I just want to see Him. And that's exactly what we get. All of chapter 14 is just seeing Jesus as He moves through the crowd, as He heals the people, as He feeds with great compassion. And now as He walks on the water, and just by looking at Him, my faith gets encouraged. I find myself stronger. It's interesting that on the night of Jesus' betrayal, He bookended His his last teaching to the apostles. John 14, 15, and 16. The very first thing Jesus said was, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. There's your key, gang. Don't be troubled. Believe Me. But then He ends that same discussion, John 16.33, saying, These things I've spoken to you, so that in Me you may have peace. Hey, in this world you're going to have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. Where does My courage come from, Lord? It comes from Me. It is I. In the same way that God said, I am, to Moses at the burning bush, Jesus now says, It's Me, to the apostles as He walks on the sea. The sight of Jesus encourages the heart. By the way, that word encourage literally means to inspire with courage and that's exactly what seeing Jesus does. He inspires courage in us. He strengthens our faith to be a more courageous faith. And notice this, the apostles in the midst of their trial here, in the midst of their storm, they're not heading for Jesus. They don't even know where they're heading. They're so much like us. You know, when you really get into the fray and things aren't going well, What direction am I heading? I don't know. I'm just spinning my wheels. I'm rolling, man. I'm rolling. Where are you going? I don't know, but I'm making good time. (laughs) And Jesus, Jesus comes to them. And that's the point, gang. He's coming to you. You may not be going to Him. You know what? You may not have the faith. You may right now be in the midst of something in your life and you're like, "I, I I don't even know what to do. I am throwing up my hands. I have no answers. And guess what? Right now, Jesus, He saw you from the mountain and He's coming to you. He's coming to you. That is the bulwark of my courage is knowing Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's coming. But He's not just coming spiritually. He's not just coming to help us emotionally or with our struggles. He is coming back. Which is to me one of the greatest sources of encouragement on a daily basis. He is coming, gang. He's coming for us. Paul calls this the blessed hope. Titus 2.13, beginning back in verse 11, says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. I look at this present age and I say, how do we do that? I mean, maybe back in the 40s, I don't know. It was easier to live godly, but not now. I've shared with you before, we have safe eyes for our internet. Safe eyes is kind of a... I can even hear Hannah's... My kids hate it. They hate it. Because they can be in the middle of looking at something on the internet and it just shuts them off. Just turns it off. And they're all almost on a daily basis. Dad, safe eyes stinks. 
Yeah, I know. Wish we didn't have to have it. But we live in an ungodly age. We live in a time where it'd be wonderful to say we could just have the, open, the, the internet open to everyone and free reign and go wherever you want because it's safe. It's not. It's not. And this is the age we live in and I hear Paul telling me you've got to live, you got to deny ungodliness and, and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. And I go, how? And he says, looking for the blessed hope. You look for the blessed hope. What is the blessed hope? The rapture of the church gang. That he's coming and he is calling you out. Because he says, look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Two things there. Two things. The blessed hope first, and then the glorious appearing of Jesus second. Two aspects of His coming. The bulwark of our courage is the coming Christ. Now in verse 28 it goes on, and Peter says to him, Love Peter, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now let's just suppose for a moment it was a demon. What would the demon say? Oh no, sorry Peter, it's not, it's not the Lord, it's just me, a little demon. <laughs> you just misunderstood. So don't come, don't step out of the boat, you know. I mean, Peter is just throwing it out there. Let me make this statement. Peter is asking in faith. Lord, if it's you, command me to come. If it's you, I want to hear the call. If it's you, Jesus, I want you to tell me to go forward. And Jesus says, come. And I really wonder if that rang in Peter's ears the same way when Jesus said, come after me, come follow me, and I'll make you a fisher of men. When Jesus said, come, it did something to the heart. And Peter knew that. Command me to come. Gang, the uh, second thing to note here is the buoy of faith. is not the coming Christ, the buoy of faith, that which... Who is your faith is coming to Christ. It's coming to Christ. This is how we grow in faith. Now this is incredibly important. It's going to take a little bit of thinking, but stay with me here. The way we grow in faith, and I get this question all the time, how can I grow in my faith? I, just, I want to be stronger than I am. I don't want to have some of the doubts that I have right now. How do I grow in that faith? Listen to this. Faith is developed not before we act on it, but as we act on it. You don't sit in your house and go, God, give me faith. Oh, yeah. That is just, now, he can do that. In fact, faith is a spiritual gift. Some people are just given faith. But for most of us, faith is something that is walked out. That Jesus says, you want faith? Come. And i got to act. i got to respond. i got to move. Listen, put these two verses together. Romans 8.24 Paul says, in hope... We have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. Who hopes for what he already sees? Who of you kids are hoping for a Christmas present you already know you got? How fun is that? That's not hope. That's reality. I know it's sitting under the tree right now. The Chandlers, you know what you're getting for Christmas? Well, you certainly told my kids you think you know what you're getting. So it's hope, really, isn't it? (laughs) This is hope. Oh, I just busted him big time. (laughs) Gang, hope is not something that you've seen. It's something that you're longing for. But Paul says, if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. But it's not a passive waiting. I'm hoping for something. And I'm convicted by that hope. And then, of course, the Hebrew writer says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Chandler has faith. 
He's assured of what He's open for. And it's the conviction of things not seen. Gang, you never sit still in conviction. Conviction moves you to action. And that's faith. God, I have no idea how I can walk on this water, but if it's You, call me out. If it's You, tell me to come. And Jesus says, come, because that's how we grow in our faith. Keep your finger in Matthew 14. Turn over to the book of Job. Job chapter 23. Before the psalm, somewhere toward the middle of your Bibles, Job 23. This man's life was falling apart. Talking about, talk about being in the storm, in the midst of turmoil and waves and wind. Job had lost his livestock, his livelihood, his family, everybody but his wife, who after reading the book of Job, I kind of wish he lost her too, because she was of no help to him whatsoever. <laughs> but here's Job, he's sitting in, in a pile of ashes, ashes on his head, sackcloth around him, boils and sores all over his body. His world is at the end. And he says in verse 3 of Job 23, Oh, that I knew where I might find him that I might come to His seat. I would present my case before Him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would learn the words which He would answer and perceive what He would say to me. Would He contend with me by the greatness of His power? No, surely He would pay attention to me or literally there He would hear me. He'd listen to me. Verse 7, There the upright would reason with Him. There I would be delivered forever from my judge. See, Job is confused. And I can't wait till we get to the book of Job because it's awesome. But he's a little confused. He thinks he's being judged by some other presence. And so he's focusing on his Redeemer as opposed to his judge, not realizing that the judge and Redeemer are the same God. And he says, oh, oh, that I would be delivered forever from my judge. Verse 8. Now watch this. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there. I go backward. I cannot perceive Him. When He acts on the left, I cannot behold Him. He turns on the right, I cannot see Him. But, listen, but He knows the way I take and has tried me. When He has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. These two verses, man, you ought to highlight, underline, and circle in your Bibles. Job says, when he acts on the left, I can't see him. When he turns on the right, I can't see him. I go forward, he's not there. I go backward, he's not there. I can't see what God is doing. But, verse 10, he knows the way I take. That's faith. It's a powerful verse. Let me give you a picture for it. I heard this a long time ago. A story about a little girl stuck in a burning house. Her father and mother and and younger brothers had made it out of the house. She's up in the second story looking out the window. She's crying, Daddy, Daddy, help me, save me. And her father's downstairs and he sees her in the window and he gets right underneath and says, Sweetheart, jump, jump, I can catch you. I'm right here. And she says, But Daddy, I can't see you. And he says, It's all right. I can see you. I can see you. Your father can see you. You can't always see what he's doing. We don't always know what God's up to. To the right or the left or before or behind. We don't always know, but He knows what He's doing. And He sees you just as Jesus saw the apostles in the midst of the sea. He saw them. And He came to them. And faith knows that even though I don't see Him, He knows the way I take. When He has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Peter said, In this you greatly rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
So if you desire to grow in your faith, God says, walk it out. Walk it out. Take the step. Don't wait for it to happen. Don't stay in the boat. You start walking. Christ is calling you forward. And you may not feel like you have the faith. You may have just that much faith. Great. Take that with you. Take what faith you've got and walk it out. Walk it out. By the way, let me just encourage you. (laughs) Have the grace to allow other people to walk it out as well. Look around you and recognize that even within this body, we've talked about in our, in our staff meetings, you know, the reality in, in church work is as much as it would be great if that everybody were just stellar Christians, the reality of a church is more of a bell curve where you've got people who are just coming in the door for the first time going, this doesn't look like a church. You know? You've got people growing in their faith. You've got the larger group of us somewhere in the middle, and then you've got those who are they're becoming missionaries and they're, you know, doing all the real amazing stuff that the rest of us in the middle are going, Well, that's cool. Please don't send me to Africa because I'm not I'm not going. But there so you got this bell curve within the church. Here's the reality. People on this end, the most faithful, godly people, never look down on people on this end. It's those of us in the middle who tend to go He's not as good as I am. You know, oh ye of little faith, you know. (laughs) Don't look down on the faith walk of others because no matter how much faith you've got, if you had enough at one point in your life to say, Jesus saved me, then you are part of this family. Walk with that. Now, by the way, I I mentioned Satan and the prince of the power of the air and the wind coming through the horns of a team. I don't think Satan had anything to do with this. I just threw that out there to tease you a little bit. I think God did this. I think he did the whole thing. I think the God who created air was the one blowing through the canyons, the one stirring up the storm, the one whipping up the waves. Why would you use Do you think God would put them in this kind of peril? Would God put me in harm's way? Yes. If it will increase your faith, yes. Now he knows you're there. He's going to see you through it. But he is not going to make life. What was life? Who signed up for Christianity because you heard it was a picnic? Stacy, you did? Well, someone misled you, my sister. Because it's not, and all you have to do is walk about five minutes in it to figure that out. The life is hard for all of us, but I absolutely believe that God sends distress. Go with me quickly, Exodus chapter 14, to another sea and another time of intense distress. Exodus 14. I just love how God does this. The people of Israel, they leave Egypt, they're safe. They're marching. Things are good. And God says things are too good. Let's have some fun here. Now, now let me be careful. Because I'm not saying that God toys with us. He never toys with us. When He brings distress or trials or challenges, it is always for a godly, divine purpose. And usually that's to increase our faith. And so here, Israel, they're, they're marching through the wilderness. And the Lord, verse 1 of Exodus 14, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Pihahirot. Between Migdal and the sea, you shall camp in front of Baal-zephon, opposite it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the sons of Israel, they're wandering aimlessly in the desert. The wilderness has shut them in. Thus the Lord says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will chase after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. And they did so. What's going on here? The people of Israel are already making their march in the direction of the promised land. And God says to Moses, 
turn around. Go back the other way. What? Yeah, just, just do as I tell you. Okay. So he starts going that way. I want you to have him camp out between Migdal and Pahirot. What does that mean? Gang, this was a mountain range where there was no way out. There was one way in and no way out except for behind them the Red Sea. It opens out to the Red Sea. And so the people of Israel all gather there at the Red Sea. They can't go to the right, they can't go to the left, and they can't go forward because there's the Egyptian army that God brought against them. And they're all sitting there, and here's my favorite part of the story. Moses in verse 13. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you have seen today, you'll never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. When did the Lord tell Moses He was going to fight for the people? In fact, looking back, we know He did not fight for the people. There was no major battle. Moses is shooting off. Moses, like a lot of preachers, is getting whipped up by his own words. That happens sometimes. It does. I can get excited and just start rolling. And that's why I say, make sure your Bibles are open. (laughs) Because I might be on a thought and go, oh, it's like this. And off I go, having a great time in my flesh. While people are writing down notes furiously. Oh, that's good. That's good. That's good. Oh, that's not even in the Bible. But it's good. You know. (laughs) And here's Moses. And I believe this is what he's doing. God's going to fight for us. There's going to be a battle today. And the people are all looking. Who's going to die first? Going to turn over chariots? What's going to happen? What does God say to Moses? <laughs> Verse 15, He says, Why are you crying out to me? Put a lid on it, dude! Stop praying. That's what God's saying here. Stop praying. Why are you crying out to me, Moses? Stop praying and tell the people to go forward. There is a time when the Lord would say to you and to me, I hear your prayers. You've been doing this on and on. Time to stop praying and move out. Time to act on your faith. Now I'm not saying anything about prayer not being constant and necessary. And as a matter of fact, even as you go forward, you go forward constantly in prayer. But there is this this niche we can get into in our Christian faith where we say, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. Great. Do something. Take a step forward. He says, Moses, I want you to stop your praying. It was the Lord who led the people into the trap. It was the Lord who brought Egypt against them. It was the Lord who then opens up the Red Sea. They're expecting a battle in front of them. He's opening up the sea behind them. Stop crying out to me and start walking. Start walking out your faith. Why does God do this? Because He develops faith by giving us reason to have to believe. Why is my life so hard? I gave my life to Jesus. Because He wants you to believe Him for more. Because He wants to grow what faith you have in you. And so, Jesus calls to Peter, back in our story. I haven't forgotten. Jesus calls to Peter and says, Come! And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. You might say, Rick, I've read the story. I know what happens. Great, Peter, Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, but Peter sinks. My answer to that is, of course he does. What, you expected Peter to walk on water? Peter's a man. He's not Jesus. He takes a few steps and he sees the wind and he gets distracted and down he goes. And I believe Jesus knew that's exactly what was going to happen. Jesus doesn't expect you to walk on water when you step out in faith. Jesus assumes you're going to sink. But He wants you to step out anyway. 
He wants you to take the chance, take the risk. Joe Phillips was talking to me on Wednesday night about some guys at work who were laughing at Christians because apparently there's some moron on TV again selling prayers for $100 a pop. Send me 100 bucks, we'll send you a prayer and you will be covered. And of course, we as Christians, as by your response, we all go, Ugh, come on! I want to walk around with a sign saying I'm a Christian, not one of those idiots on TV. You know? And Joe was a little discouraged because these guys were really slamming Christianity because of all the bogus shams that, that go on. And I told Joe, I said, you know, go back and ask him what that has to do with Jesus. Nothing. The stupidity of man has nothing to do with Jesus. And in fact, when someone tries to sidetrack you, I've said this before, but get this in your heads. If someone tries to sidetrack you away from talking about Jesus by talking about the horrors of the church or these hypocritical Christians or all the stupid things Christians do, you accept that. You say, you're right, I agree with you. But let's talk about Jesus. What does that have to do with Him? I'm not asking you to put your faith in man or in the church. I'm asking you to put your faith in Jesus Christ because He is one worth putting our faith in. We don't follow man, we follow Christ. You see, it's only us who when people of faith sink into the waves get upset. I don't think it bothers Jesus at all. He knows when we step out there's a good chance we're going to go down, but He never lets us go under. Verse 30, seeing the wind, he became frightened. Beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me! And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him, which I think he planned to do all along. And he said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? My immediate answer would have been, what do you think I was going to do? Look at the wind and the waves and the sea. Of course I'm going to doubt. Jesus wasn't asking Peter so Peter could give him the answer. Jesus was asking Peter so Peter could learn that himself. Why did I doubt? i got Jesus here. What do I have to worry about? Gang, the third thing to jot down if you're noting this, the ballast of our faith is in clinging to Christ. A ship's ballast is that which provides stability. What keeps it afloat. What keeps us afloat, gang, is clinging to Christ. It's not even our faith. It's hanging on for dear life to Jesus. He provides stability. Peter steps out of the boat, but he stepped, gang, he stepped back into the boat with greater faith than when he left. Because he walked on that water with Jesus. This is my favorite part of the story. It's the part that's actually in between verse 31 and 32. The part we don't hear about. The walk back. He had to walk on the water to get back into the boat. The Bible doesn't tell us he grabbed Peter and chucked him into the boat. You know? He grabs Peter, pulls him out, and I just see this. I could be wrong, but I see Jesus putting his arm around Peter, and the two are walking. As Jesus is explaining what just went on, Peter's going, Yeah, I, just, I see that, Lord. And they're walking on the water. That's faith. And Peter's faith that was this big when he stepped out of the boat was this big when he got back in the boat. Jesus asked, why did you doubt? It's an object lesson. So Peter will learn why he doubted and not to do it in the future. Now again, I remind you, the Lord does not act randomly. He doesn't do things in response or by knee-jerk or out of surprise. He always knows exactly what He's doing. And in this whole story, He is developing a bulwark, a buoy, a ballast for His apostles to walk in faith. That's what this story is about. That's why this happened. So that those twelve would have a deeper, richer, greater, greater faith because of it. Matthew 4, uh, 14.32 When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Storm over. Immediate calm. 
And those who were in the boat worshipped Him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. You think maybe they had more faith at that point than they had a few minutes before? You are certainly God's Son. Romans 1.17 says in the Gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That's how it works. From faith to faith. You come to Jesus with that little kernel of faith. It's not much, but it got you here. It got the Bible open. It got you acknowledging that maybe, possibly, yeah, I believe, He's real. That's my kernel. That's faith. And the Bible tells us God takes that and takes you to faith. And then He takes this faith and He gives you a little more. And as you walk out your Christian faith in the circumstance of life around you, your faith increases. The only time faith decreases is when we shrink back and stop moving. I'm not going to go forward anymore. I'm tired of church and people. I'm not going to church. Your faith will shrink. I don't understand. The Bible is too much for me. I'm going to keep it closed. Your faith will shrink. I, I, don't, have time to, I don't have time to pray. Your faith will shrink. As long as you are walking forward with what little you've got to give Him, your faith is going to grow. And grow and grow. Isn't that marvelous? It is written... The righteous man shall live by faith. Now buckle up. i got one more thing to tell you real quick. It's a great place to stop right there, I know, but I can't stop. And I'm not Moses on the sea, so listen to me. Right. This whole account, there's an overview. If we were to jump now into an airplane and fly over the scene and look at it in the big picture, I believe the picture of Jesus walking on the sea, this whole story has a beautiful dispensational look about it. What do you mean by that? It's a picture of the entire 2,000 years that we have been in, in this church age. It's a picture of what's going on. If you think about it, and I'll give this to you quickly, in verse 22, Jesus sends the disciples across the sea without Him. Well, not without His Spirit, not without His care, not without His eyes being on them, but physically He is not present in the boat. Physically, Jesus is not present in the boat of the church. His Spirit is with us and given to us. In fact, He said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage I go away. John 16, 7. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send Him to you. But right now, we don't see the glorified physical Lord as we will. We will. But we don't right now. What's Jesus doing? Well, in verse 23 of our story, He's on the mountain praying. Right now, as we walk in the storms of this life, He is on the mountain praying. For you and for me. Two of the most amazing verses in Scripture. Romans 8.34 Christ is He who died, yes rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. You know, Jesus was praying that you would get here safely this morning. When you're slipping on the road, Jesus was like, just get Him there, get Him there. Jesus is interceding for you and for me constantly. When you come into conflict, when you have challenge, when your faith is getting rattled, Jesus is interceding on your behalf. Hebrews 7.25 He's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through Him. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. He is the great intercessor. Always praying for you and for me. In verse 24 we see the apostles are battered by the waves. Jesus already said, in this world you will have tribulation. You're going to get battered by the waves. You're going to have rough sailing. That's the way it is. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Nobody promised that this would be smooth sailing, gang. This is a reality of the life that we live in Christ. It's going to get rough. 
And in verse 25, he comes to the apostles, I love this part, unexpectedly. No one thought Jesus was showing up. No one on that boat was looking out going, ah, when he's, when he's going to walk out here to us. This was an absolute shock and surprise to them. In the same way that His coming is going to be for us. I don't care how hard you're looking for Jesus, you're going to be surprised. He said in Matthew 24, Be sure of this, if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. He comes unexpectedly in the fourth watch of the night and shocks all of the apostles and even people of the greatest faith are just when He comes, when He calls, we're just going to go, Wow! Now? Can I change? No? Okay, let's just go. And He'll take us up. Even the water walk of Peter reminds us of these encouraging words. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. I I don't have to repeat this. I will because it's what I do. But you've heard it before. The way that you keep from sinking is you keep your eyes on Jesus. He perfects the faith. You keep your eyes on Jesus. The winds are going to blow. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The waves are going to get big. They're going to distract. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And He authored your faith. He will perfect it as well. That's His promise. By the way, how does it all end? Verse 33, They worshipped Him saying, You are certainly God's Son. And that's how this age is going to win. This sail across the Galilee that we are currently involved in will end the exact same way with us on our knees crying out, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen? Let's walk from faith to faith. Bring Him what you got. doesn't matter if it's little. Bring it to Him. He'll increase it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the wonder of Your Word and for this fantastic truth that You are working out faith even as we take little baby steps. Even as we walk forward. I pray and I ask, Father, I'm asking for an increase of faith for the Bridge Christian Fellowship. For this body of believers, Lord. Would You just bust that whole bell curve thing wide open? Would You stop allowing us? Don't allow us, Father. Stop us from sitting comfy in the middle. Push us forward, Lord. That we might be a, a church, a fellowship of great faith. Always expecting You for the next great thing. Help us to walk this out in our personal lives, in our families, with our children, with our parents, with brothers and sisters and friends. Help us to walk out this faith at work. God, I pray tomorrow morning as people head into the workplace, they take that little nugget of faith with them and walk it out. And God, as as You deliver and as You strengthen and even as You allow us to walk into and wander into these times of distress, pray through it all that You will grab hold of our hand Stretch out, Lord, your hand. Grab us. Hold on tight. Teach us how to hold on in return. In Jesus' name, Amen.